You're listening to the Creating Your Own Path podcast, episode number 91. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jen Snyder, and as always, you can listen to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or your favorite podcast app. You can also catch a new episode each week at creatingyourownpath.com. Today's show is pretty awesome, you guys. I am chatting with Tina Esmaker of The Great Discontent on this episode, and I have to admit, I felt myself sort of turning into a fangirl. It happens, right? To the best of us, even. I am sure that you have probably been in a position at some point where you have had a chance to talk with someone whose work you really admire, and you find yourself just gushing over how great they are. Well, that is exactly how I felt with this interview. I love The Great Discontent, from the purpose behind the publication to the way the stories are shared. It's all just really beautiful and, more importantly, meaningful. For those of you who have not heard of The Great Discontent, I know that 99.9% of you will likely enjoy it. Tina and her husband created the publication because they wanted to talk to others about the highs and lows of creative work. In the interview, Tina talks about the big changes she had to make in her own life before she could really pursue the work that was right for her. She also talks about the importance of getting out of your own way, the realities of using crowdfunding to finance creative work, and why she believes in the power of picking one thing and doing it really well before adding other elements to the mix. Like I said, this interview is a good one, and I hope you all get as much out of it as I did. Let's get to Tina. Okay, Tina. So we are going to talk about your beautiful publication in just a minute. But first, will you share a little bit about your you know, professional background and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So my professional background is actually in a totally different field. I went to college and studied social work. I have a bachelor's in social work. And I worked with runaway and homeless youth for about 12 years at the same nonprofit. Um, In the meantime, I started doing freelance copywriting because I'd always had an interest in writing and I was good at it. And then that, you know, kind of merged with my interest in in doing something creative. I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I I felt pretty stuck um, and I didn't really feel qualified. And, um, you know, I had at this point, uh, my husband Ryan and I had met. And we had talked about working on a creative project together. So, so yeah, I had an interest in writing and editing, um, but that's not what I went to school for. So I think it took me a long time to say, okay, I'm going to do this um, because I didn't feel qualified per se. And Ryan and I had talked about working on a creative project together for a long time. Um, but, you know, we were working day jobs and we got really busy. When we came home in the evening, we just wanted to relax and veg out, watch, you know, the latest episode of whatever TV show we were watching at the time. So we did that for a few years. And then I think it was about five years into this life of working day jobs and coming home and just being really discontent about where we were at. We read the book, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And In the book, he talks about this thing called resistance, which is basically, you know, you feel a lot of resistance when there's this thing inside of you or this thing that you really need to be doing, this work you need to be putting out in the world, that's when you feel the most resistance. And that really resonated with us and it kicked our asses and we were like, oh man, like we really need to work on some type of creative project together. And so um, we combined, you know, my interest in writing and editing and his 
experience and interest in design and creative direction, and we decided to work on a magazine, which was something we had talked about over the years, um, initially doing something in print, but we didn't really have the financial resources or even know where to start with that. So we did what we knew, and we started online, and that was actually five years ago. We just celebrated our five-year anniversary. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so we launched The Great Discontent online in um, August 2011, and five years later, here we are. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and that's I mean, it's so such a big deal, I think, to really celebrate those those milestones, you know. And um, and so you you said a couple of things in there that I wouldn't mind unpacking. You mentioned that you you were working your day job and you were interested in this, you know, these other things and kind of working on a creative project, but you didn't feel qualified. So how did you get beyond that feeling of like, how did you convince yourself that you were actually qualified? (laughs) Because I think part of it is like personal resistance, right? Yeah. Oh no, for sure. I think that we are our own worst critic and people around me growing up had told me things like, Oh, you're, you're a good writer. You should write more and share it. You know, even my husband, Ryan was the one who initially prodded me to do some copywriting because he was doing client work and clients would send over this just really just copy that, you know, it needed a lot of help. Yeah. And so I would help with that. And then, you know, I don't know. I just, I realized that I was never going to feel qualified. And if I waited until I felt qualified, I would never do anything. And so I thought, well, maybe if I just do it, then I can get enough experience and in a few weeks or months or years, maybe I will feel qualified. And, and I think on some level, whether or not you have training, I think that you can still feel unqualified because you compare yourself, right? There's always someone who's been doing it longer or seems um, more skilled than you. So I think you can't, you can't allow yourself to play that game. You have to just say, you know, I'm interested in this, in this, I'm going to explore it. I don't necessarily feel qualified, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So um, actually, that's how this podcast got started, because I didn't know what the <laughs> heck I was doing when I started it. So I want to talk about the early days of The Great Discontent. Um, it's beautiful. You guys do such a good job, both like aesthetically, but also with the content. You know, you mentioned that you started online, and you also mentioned that it had a lot to do with your own discontent with how things were going in your own professional life. So how did you bring this to life? Like looking back, it seems like we were very calculated and we researched our, you know, demographic, our target audience. None of that happened. Basically what happened was Ryan and I were living in Michigan at the time and we spent a lot of evenings, we had a deck, so we would sit out on the deck and we would talk about this project once we decided that we were going to make it happen and I would have my notebook and I would be taking notes and just writing down everything, not knowing you know, what might be, you know, this nugget of an idea that we would come back to. And so we were feeling pretty isolated in Michigan. You know, we had each other, but we didn't really have a creative community outside of that or just people outside of that who we felt like, you know, we all were kind of seeking the same things in life. And so I don't know. We just thought, hey, if we could interview people we look up to or people who are doing something creative for a living, like, what would we ask them? Um, and I think part of the, there were two things that were motivators for us. One was, like I mentioned, we were isolated or we felt isolated and lacking community. And number two was we wanted to do something creative for a living 
but neither of us were. You know, I was doing social work and Ryan had his own web and design studio. He was working for a lot of nonprofit clients. You know, it was paying the bills, but it certainly wasn't as fulfilling as we desired. Um, so yeah, I think those two things were motivators. So we, we wanted to ask questions that other people weren't asking. When, when we would read an interview online, like your favorite musician in Rolling Stone or someone in Interview Magazine, like we wanted to really dive deep into the person's story and what motivated them and, you know, talk about like the shitty parts of yeah. working in a creative discipline and like the struggle and how much you doubt yourself and the failures and, and all of those all of those things that are that anyone who works in a creative discipline knows, like that is the reality. Like it's not as glamorous as it looks. But we also wanted to feel hopeful after those conversations. You know, we didn't want to feel like, oh, this just isn't possible. Like like the people we were talking to had some level of of success, at least in our eyes. And so we we wanted to kind of get get the inside scoop on how and how they did that or how they made that happen so yeah it was just a lot of conversations about really what would what we wanted to do and because up front it was a passion project meaning we didn't rely on it for income um, we could do anything we wanted so originally we had plans to make a site that had you know a blog and different recurring columns that people would focus on different topics. Um, you know, we had a whole site built out in our mind that was very complicated and it had a lot of content that would need to be populated. And then we said, wait a minute, who's going to write all this content? Right. And yeah, so we just stripped the idea down. You know, we asked ourselves like, what's the foundation of this project? Like what's the main idea? And we stripped everything away. And to us, the main like meat of TGD was these interviews. And so that's what we started with. And then, you know, for your listeners who might not be familiar with TGD, so we launched online in 2011, continued working our day jobs, and then in 2013, we did a Kickstarter campaign to um, make our first print issue. And then this past year, we also started doing a live event series and a podcast. So it's really grown from that initial idea, but I think the reason we were able to do it and do it so consistently in the beginning was that we pared it down to one very simple executionable idea. Which is, you know, first of all, that's like amazing advice. <laughs> if people just want to take notes right now while they're listening, um, <laughs> because uh, it is really easy to think about doing all the things, you know, and, and kind of making it big from the get go. But when you can execute on one thing and do it really well, I think that shows through. And so I wanted to talk about the Kickstarter because I think it's really interesting to well to talk to people who've who've used crowdfunding both quite frankly successfully and maybe not so successfully because it is a full-time job almost to try and get people to support your Kickstarter um if you don't already have like a huge following you know I'm I'm curious why you decided to go down the crowdfunding path if you will and then how the campaign worked out for you guys I mean, I mean you guys were successful but like, did it work out the way you thought it would work out? The bottom line for us was we didn't have the money to invest into a print issue up front. And we also wanted to know if there was even a demand, you know, if people were even interested in buying a print issue. And so I think Kickstarter was a way to say to our existing community and people who found us during the campaign, like, we want to venture into print. 
Um, you've been asking us about it over the years. Are you serious? Would, you know, would you actually buy a print magazine? And if so, like, put a little money behind it and help us make the leap into print. And so it worked out. I mean, we were, Ryan did a lot of the preliminary work. You know, he had a very detailed spreadsheet of a budget of all the print, all the printing costs, like basically every kind of, every dollar that would go into making and fulfilling um, the magazine, you know, printing it and then fulfilling it and shipping it to customers. So, you know, we set a goal that we knew we needed this amount of money in order to make it happen. And we met the goal on the last day. We did not think we were going to need it. It was, the graph is hilarious because it did really well in the beginning. And then there was a big slump in the middle. And then all of a sudden it's like, it shoots straight up, you know, on the last day we raised, oh my goodness, I, I, I can't even remember what it was now, but it was like something ridiculous. Like like 20k or 40k I can't remember basically it was such a large sum that we woke up on the final day and we just we felt very defeated and we thought you know this might not make it and if it doesn't at least we gave it a try but our community really rallied around us and you know people were tweeting and sharing and saying this must get funded and you know we, we put a lot of effort into promoting it the last day too so it did get funded but yeah, it's the, it's an emotional roller coaster to do a Kickstarter. I would t- I would advise anyone who wants to do one, like if there's any other way you think you can fund your project, you should do it that other way <laughs> um, because it's so much work. But having said that, like for us, it was the right choice, and I think it can be really it can be a really great thing. You know, it was great press. It really brought our community together. New people found out about us. Um, our community that we had been building for a couple of years felt like we're in this together and we were. So yeah, it was, it was way more emotional than I realized it would be. Yeah. And I've heard that a lot from people who have, have chosen to do a crowdfunding type of campaign. Um, and it's such a fascinating way to test an idea. Like you said, it's amazing to see whether or not people will actually follow through because it's one thing to say, I don't know, share one of your interviews on Facebook or Twitter or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but to actually put money behind it is like a whole nother level of commitment. <laughs> and Definitely. so, um, so it's cool. It's cool to, you know, also to know that you guys, it, it wasn't like you, you also, you see these Kickstarter campaigns where they like hit their goal in three days or something crazy. And, um, and it's, you know, they end up with millions of dollars or something for their project. But, but the reality of it is that, is that it's a lot of work. You also mentioned earlier that, you know, there may be some people who who are kind of just becoming familiar with you guys and they really are in for a treat because you guys do have a lot of different types of content or or I guess I should say that you produce and share your content in really interesting and different ways. So you do have the online interview still, the print publication, which I highly recommend because it is stunning, Um, (laughs) the podcast, live events, and all of that good stuff. So I'm curious in terms of your team, you know, how have you decided when to add new things to the mix? Because you said you really distilled it and started with just one thing. So how do you know when it's time to evolve or when it's time to add, say, live events or the podcast or whatever? How did you guys decide that? Well, I think part of it is taking a look at the culture and the trends in publishing. You know, publishing is ever evolving. It's not static. It's always changing. And even, you know, we're a a very small publisher, um, small but growing. And so compared to someone like, you know, some of these giant media companies like BuzzFeed or any of Condé Nast's brands, you know, we don't have 
all of those resources to do all of the things they're doing. But as we've watched other people kind of diversify and just, you know, having a pulse on the culture, like we love going to events this year, since we've been doing the podcast, like I would say like six months prior to us launching our podcast, I got super into listening to podcasts and I'm obsessed. So I think part of it is like looking at where things are going, you know, um, people do still read online, but people are also really busy and we wanted to make our content more accessible to people who they might not have, you know, 20 minutes uninterrupted to sit down and read a long form interview online, but they could listen to one of our podcasts while they're exercising or commuting or making dinner. Um, and I think the other, the other reason is just that we felt really comfortable. You know, we, had been publishing online and doing the print piece for a few years. And, you know, the more you do something, the better you get and the easier it becomes. And we wanted to challenge ourselves again and see if these different types of content were worthwhile. And we've gotten really great feedback about the events that we do in New York each month at Wythe Hotel. And we've gotten amazing feedback about the podcast as well. So I think it's been, both have been rewarding endeavors. And they've been things that our team is really excited about too. You know, when you do something for a while, you, you get to the point where you know, okay, we need to change it up, right? Like it it still feels good and it's still something that needs to exist, but we need to explore other things as well. And I think that's the point we got to this year. And just feeling like, okay, I mean, TGD the spirit of TGD could be embodied in anything. You know, it's not about just we have to be an online magazine or a print magazine. You know, the great discontent is something that could be embodied in so many different mediums. And so we're at the point where we're ready to explore those. Which is exciting, I think. Um, and, And you're right. I mean, it all comes down to sharing those stories, really, no matter how they get shared. I do have a follow up question. You know, sometimes when it sounds like you wanted to sort of add these different elements because it's more creatively fulfilling too for you guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's important <laughs> to stay fulfilled in what you're doing because that's part of the reason you started it in the first place. I'm curious though, what is there like a financial benefit for you guys to do things in a lot of different ways? You know, as I've been doing these interviews, I think it's really interesting to talk about because there's this assumption, right? That like, there's no way that print is going to pay your bills <laughs> uh, these days. And so have you seen other opportunities come from expanding into other elements? Definitely. So I totally agree. Print will never be the sole source of income, you know, unless you're just printing huge, huge runs. And so, yeah, I mean, it just gives, you know, we have brands and partners that we work with. Um, some like to partner with us for online, some like events, some prefer podcasts. So it just, it offers more variety for those companies that want to partner with us, you know, depending on who their audience is and where their audience likes to hang out. Um, it just provides more opportunities. So that's been cool for us. Yeah. I just think it's really, um, like strategically, I think it's really smart. And, you know, the, the listeners of this show always appreciate sort of that sort of strategic thinking because, Yes, being creatively fulfilled is wonderful and awesome, but like paying your rent slash mortgage slash buying groceries is pretty cool too. (laughs) So, um, so we always have to think about that stuff as well. You know, I kind of want to switch just a little bit to talk about the content itself, but I've been wondering, have you had any, I guess, like personal aha moments come from any of the interviews, you know, have, have any interviews in particular kind of made you 
really stop and think, whether that's in the print or online or podcast space? I'm just curious. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think every, every interview I do, and I hope it's this way for readers as well. I think of it, it's almost like looking in a mirror, but you're not looking at yourself. You're looking at someone else, but they're reflecting certain things back on you. Like I see certain things that I've experienced or struggled with or whatever. They're just like these common, there are these connections. And I think every time I interview someone, there's something different that I might connect with them about. But somehow for me, talking to and learning about other people helps me learn more about myself. I think an interview, so an interview that I did recently that was really, it felt really life-changing and maybe that sounds like, like odd for me to say, but um, I interviewed Krista Tippett, the host of um, On Being, which is an incredible, incredible uh, broadcast. Mm-hmm. And um, she, you know, she's so thoughtful and well-spoken and we talked about her show, which has been running since the early 2000s and she talked about how hard she had to fight for it in the beginning because when you're doing something that no one has seen before you think people will be curious about it but instead they're like this isn't the way we do things and that's what she experienced you know in the early years of her radio show and um, she just said so many things that were that really spoke to kind of like where I feel like I'm at right now in my personal and professional life in terms of you know, the business I'm building and then personally just things that I'm exploring and how I'm evolving. And so I don't know, every once in a while, there's an interview that I do that seems more timely than the others, you know, in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I mean, just doing this show, I've definitely experienced that for myself as well. So, you know, as a follow-up, are there any interviews where you guys just really hope that someday in some form, they will be on The Great Discontent. Oh, sure. I mean, we, we're always planning our editorials. So we have a list of people who we'd like to see in print or online or at a live event. Um, and so we have, you know, an ongoing list that we're always like, editing, revising, adding to. So I would really, you know, personally, selfishly, I would really love to interview the writer Anne Lamott because I think she's fantastic. And her oh my books, gosh, yes. Mm-hmm, her books have been... You know, her books are so profound and she speaks, I don't know, she just speaks in a way that's like, oh, I get that. Like the way she talks about shitty first drafts and, and how, you know, really the, any anytime you do something for the first time, it's shitty. Like it's supposed to be, you have to just keep doing it again. And, and so her writing and work has meant a lot to me over the years and really encouraged me. Um, so I would love to interview her. Um, you know, I think there are, some really, I guess, like interesting figures culturally that I would love to sit down with. Um, although sometimes I find, or, you know, I think that maybe the more well-known someone is, the less interesting of an interview they're going to give because so much of their life is already out in the public or they have a persona that they're trying to uphold. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, like, I would be, it would be fascinating to me to interview someone like, you know, Kendrick Lamar or, or Frank Ocean has the new album out. Yeah. So, like, they, they seem, it seems to me like they would just have a really amazing thing to say about the creative process and that they wouldn't really be censoring themselves. But I don't know. I will say this. There's one person that um, I'm going to interview, and I've been trying to get him for years. And he's incredible. And if you've not heard of him, 
you need to go to his site. Um, his name is Ron Finley, and he's based in L.A., in Compton, actually. And he calls himself uh, the Gangster Gardener, and he has an incredible story. Um, he started planting gardens, like, curbside yeah. like, on his property, and the city was like, you can't plant here. And he was like, well, I can't go to the store. Like, I live in Compton. I can't. Right go get healthy food at the corner store or whatever. And and so he actually got the laws changed and now he's um, advocating for these urban gardens, you know, all over the city of LA and elsewhere. And so he, um, he gave a Ted talk that is really incredible. Um, if you have a chance to listen to it, you should check it out. Yeah. I, what I'll do is I will, um, this sound, his story does sound amazing and I will look him up and try and find that Ted talk and link up to it in the show notes. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So, I always try to ask the people I interview if they have any advice for, for listeners. Um, and so I'm curious when you look back at kind of everything you've accomplished with the great discontent over the years, are there any things that you kind of like wish you knew when? So like, you know, when you first started, was there something you were like, man, I wish I would have known that. Hmm. That's a good question. I wish I would have started doing what I'm doing now earlier, but I think that's, you know, it's hard to look back and say that you should have started something earlier. Like maybe it wouldn't be what it is now if I had started it earlier. I think the biggest thing I've learned or realized over the years is that no one really knows what they're doing. I mean, on some level we do, right? But no one has, there's no guaranteed path to success. And I think that no matter where you live or what your nine to five job that pays the, the bills is, you can find a small amount of time to do something that you really love, whether it's for yourself or something that you put out on the internet. I think we are our own worst enemy and, you know, we can't give in to that resistance. Like if there's a reason you're not happy, if there's a reason you're not doing what you really want to do, like you need to look inside. Like it's not, there's nothing external. There's no external um, magic that's going to happen to change your situation. And what I realized so many years ago in Michigan when we started The Great Discontent is that I had to make a change first before there would be any kinds of opportunities or anything would be affected externally. So I think that would be my biggest piece of advice is just start doing something small where you're at and see how it goes and see what opportunities might come. And if, if it you know, you don't like it or it doesn't work out, like try something else. That is such great advice. And um, we went for full circle a little bit because you talked about <laughs> at the beginning. We just want to wrap it up because we are almost out of time here. So where is the best place online to find out more about you and the great discontent? If you want to find out about me, I am personally on Twitter and Instagram and all those things. You can actually just go to tina.is and find links to all of those um, if you want to check out The Great Discontent, you can go to thegreatdiscontent.com, and there you can find um, a link to all of our podcast shows. You can read through our archive of 215-plus interviews. I forget the exact number we're wow. at, but I, I know it's over 215. Um, and so it's just like a big treasure chest of archives of interviews with uh, probably names you'll you'll recognize names you won't um, but there's a lot of a lot of insights and advice for anyone pursuing something creative in there yeah and I can't recommend it enough so Tina thank you for your time today I really appreciate it of course thank you for having me 
Okay, so that was Tina, and she is all kinds of inspiring, but I also love that the way she thinks about everything is completely based in logic. Like she mentioned, you can find everything you need to know about The Great Discontent by heading to thegreatdiscontent.com. You can also find out more about Tina at tina.is. I have, of course, linked up to everything we mentioned in today's episode over at creatingyourownpath.com if you just want to find it all in one spot. And don't forget that the best way to show Creating Your Own Path a little bit of love is by heading over to iTunes, rating the show, and leaving a review. iTunes is not the only podcasting app out there, but it is one of the largest and it runs on an algorithm. So every time you guys leave a review or you rate the show, it helps others find it. I also read every review that comes in and I really appreciate all of your feedback. Of course, if that is not your jam, you can always share your favorite episodes on social media or tell a friend about the show. As always, you guys, thank you for listening and I will catch you next week.